I begin with this little story. <clears throat> As a bagpiper, I play many gigs. It's not my story. I'm not a bagpiper. As a bagpiper, I play many gigs. Recently, I was asked by a funeral director to play at a graveside service for a homeless man. He had no family or friends. So the service was to be at a pauper cemetery in the Kentucky backcountry. I was not familiar with the backwoods, and I got lost. Being a typical man, I didn't stop for directions, and I finally arrived an hour late. I saw the funeral guy had evidently gone, and the hearse was nowhere in sight. There were only the diggers and crew left, and they were eating their lunch. I felt badly and apologized to the men for being late. I went and sat. I went to the side of the grave and looked down, and the vault lid had already been placed. I, did not, I didn't know what else to do, so I started to play my bagpipes. The workers put down their lunches and began to gather around. I played out my heart and soul for this man that had no family and friends. I played like I've never played before for this homeless man. And as I played Amazing Grace, the workers began to weep. They wept and I wept. We all wept together. When I finished, I packed up my bagpipes and started for my car. Though my head hung low, my heart was full. As I opened the door to the car, I heard one of the workers say, I've never seen nothing like that before, and I've been putting septic tanks in for 20 years. <laughs> it's a terrible thing to find yourself completely unaware of what is going on in the world around you. And I've been saying for these last few sermons that at Christmas this often happens to us. We get so caught up in what the culture wants us to do. That we miss out on the true meaning of Christmas. And so I've been arguing and I've been trying to get at different lenses to say, we've, we've got to look at this thing differently. We've got to understand better what's going on. And today, we're going to look in a very weird place to do that. I want to look at the genealogies of Jesus. They're found in Matthew chapter 1 and in Luke chapter 3. This morning, I'm going to actually read both accounts this is probably going to be the most boring text reading I've ever read before a sermon. And, uh, and so I'm just going to try to read it fast and keep going. And I'm going to, if I don't know a name, I'm just going to say name. Just, I'm not going to try to pronounce all these. I've been practicing. But we're in Matthew 1. I'm going to, I'm going to read. I just want you to, I want to read both of them so that you can see some of the differences between the two. And then we're just going to weigh in and kind of wrestle with some of these differences. So Matthew 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Everybody's getting the pace now, right? We're gonna, I'm just going to try to burn through these. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nishan. And Nishan, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of David the king. There we go. There's a name we all know. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. That's Bathsheba. Solomon was the father of Rehob. Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph. Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, 
Joram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, Amos the father of Josiah, <sighs> Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. So there we go, we got another time reference, Babylon. After the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Ebiud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, who was born who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. All right, now we're going to Luke. Luke reads a little faster because he doesn't name every name twice. Luke chapter 3, verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Methot, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Semain, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joan, uh, Jonan, kind of sounds like the way my kids say my name, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Mathoth, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph. The son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melia, the son of Mena, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David. Here we go, David, you know that one. The son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Ebor, the son of Shalah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad. Arphaxad. I wish I'd had that name when I had kids. I might have used that one. The son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalaleel. Doesn't Jared sound funny in there? Like, that's just a normal name to us, Jared. Uh, the son of Canaan, the son of Enoch, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Now, why don't we get more excited about reading and talking about the genealogies? There's a lot of names. If you noticed... There's a lot of different names. See, there are these people that we have in life, they're called nerds. And what nerds tend to do is take something that most people don't care that much about and really focus on it and talk about it and look at it a lot. And there are, we, we all have a little bit of nerd in us, some of us more than others. There are these special nerds called Bible nerds. And Bible nerds tend to do this with Bible texts. And there are a bunch of Bible nerds that like to deal with the genealogies because there are some real differences between them. Uh, let me just run down some of the differences. 
First of all, they're formatted different, right? Matthew goes from Abraham to Jesus, but Luke goes from Jesus to Adam. So they're actually totally backwards from each other. There are different names, even of the same people. For instance, in Matthew, the father of Boaz is Solomon, but Luke has Salah as the father of Boaz. Even Joseph has a different father, Joseph the father of Jesus. In the one, he has Jacob, but in Luke, he has Peli. Joseph has two different dads in the two genealogies. In fact, he has a different grandfather and a different great-grandfather and a bunch of different names. They skip names. Matthew 1.11 says Josiah was the father of Jeconiah. But Josiah had three sons, one of whom was Jehoiakim, who had Jeconiah. Which means we know from the Old Testament that Matthew skips a name there. Um, Josiah is not the father of Jeconiah. He is the grandfather of Jeconiah. This happens a number of times in the genealogies from the Old Testament that we have. Um, They do not always agree with the Old Testament in terms of timeline. Boaz was married to a woman in, in the genealogies named Rahab. But in the Old Testament, if it's the same Rahab, which I don't know why you would list a random lady if it wasn't this Rahab, but Rahab was a, uh, a spy that helped the people when they were spying on the, the Promised Land. I mean, according to Old Testament history, these two figures are 200 years apart. They're, they're not, they live at the same time. These genealogies include women and shady characters. Most genealogies didn't include women. But this one includes women. It includes a bunch of bad kings. It includes also a number of Gentiles. The women that are listed are not Jewish. And in fact, the women that you would think are listed, Rebecca, Sarah, all the great uh, 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 matriarchs of the Jewish people, aren't listed at all. Matthew's numbers don't add up. This is really interesting. Remember how he said, there's 14 from here to here, 14 from here to here, 14 from here to here. But there's only 13 in the last set. You do math, you you can tell, you can go back and look, and there's only 13. I don't know where Matthew gets 14, there's 13. Luke has 11 series of 7 names, totaling 77. Matthew has these sets of 14, and they don't line up. Luke also puts his, gospel, his genealogy in a weird place. Matthew's is right there at the beginning where you would expect the genealogy to be. But Luke, even though he has a birth narrative, Mark and John don't. They don't talk about Jesus' birth at all. Luke does, but he saves the genealogy until Jesus is an adult. Both say Joseph. They're there, the genealogy of Joseph. But think about this for a second. Joseph is not Jesus' father, Right? If we believe in the virgin birth, which both Gospels make a big deal out of, then who gives a rip if Joseph's lineage is going back to David? Because Joseph is not the father. So how do we make sense of these? Most of the time these are confusing and they're boring, but we, and we, we just kind of leave them alone. But I want to dig in here a little bit, because I think there are some valuable things for us to learn. First of all, you have to understand what genealogies are. We tend to think of genealogies as just tracking back who your family is. How many of you have done family trees and ancestry stuff? Yeah, it's getting very popular with the internet now. You can find a lot more stuff a lot easier. So you can go back and try to find. That wasn't what genealogies were for in these days. People didn't just get interested in their background and go find it. They had very important purposes for genealogies. 
And genealogies were always written to share a specific purpose. One was for the, for the passing on of property. Okay? In, the, in these times, men owned the property, and the property was only supposed to stay within the family, and you were only supposed to marry within your tribe in Israel. And so you had to keep track of the genealogy so you could know if people could marry, and you could know how the, how the family line went for the property. Sometimes genealogies were written for heritage or for authority. So there's, if you were from the line of David, you would track your way back to David because you wanted to say something about your family. Now, there were other people that were also related to David, right? So did they have ultimate claims to the throne? The answer is no. So you had to be able to track, okay, you're from David, so you're from that line, but do you have authority from that line? And so genealogies at this time were written for a purpose. They were written to say something about the person you were writing about. You were trying to make a claim about that person and who they were and what authority they had. And so when we go back in history, we find genealogies weren't real accurate. You, you picked the names and you, you sorted them in a way that fit what you were trying to say about the person. See, we always have a problem when we try to take ancient documents and make them fit into our understanding of history and how you track that stuff. Because our way of trying to track family trees and that kind of thing, it's relatively, in the, in the last couple hundred years, that's how you've done it. In the past, that just wasn't how you kept track of history. In fact, there's all kinds of history books getting written today because people are going back and trying to figure out what was Abraham Lincoln really like? And Because you just didn't keep track of stuff the same way. So these genealogies are written for a specific purpose. And they were often structured and stylized and written to accent whatever you were trying to say about the person in the genealogy. Everybody with me so far? So let's talk about Matthew. Matthew goes from Abraham to Jesus. He goes from past to to present. This is how Jewish lineages were always written. Because in the Jewish understanding, it was most important that you track from Abraham. It's most important that you understood where you came from because where you came from is even more important than who you are. So in the Old Testament, genealogies are written from past to present. And Matthew, who writes to a primarily Jewish audience, does the same thing. Now, um, we have a thing that we sometimes do, or we have children do, where we kind of do acronyms for names. Um, J is for joyful. O is for, I don't know, I don't have a know. I'm making this up as I go. But you understand what I mean. We take the, the letters of the name and you try to associate a word or something with that. It's kind of childish poetry. A lot of you haven't done it for years and years. Um, but in ancient times, they used to do some of that kind of poetry as real poetry. And in fact, they used to do it a lot with people's names. In the Jewish culture, in Jewish writing, in Hebrew, and I had to learn this stuff and it was annoying. Um, you have your words based on consonants. So the word David is D-V-D. Okay, it's actually Dalit, Vav, Dalit. D-V-D. Does that make sense? And in your vowels, in Hebrew, you don't write vowels. You write little pointers, like little dots and lines above your words to tell you what vowels go in between the consonants. And then, depending on what the vowels are, you have variances on those words that can mean different things. Um, and if you get really good at Hebrew, which I never did, but if you go to Israel right now and you read the paper, there aren't any vowels. There's no vowels written. 
It's just assume you can figure out what the vowels should be. I never, ever got to that point, and I never will. So the, the whole language is based on consonants. And so what they used to do sometimes for poetry is they would, they would take the, the letters of the alphabet and assign them numbers. So in our alphabet, A would be 1, B would be 2, C would be 3, and so forth and so on. And then your, your name could generally be given a number. Well, Dalit, which is the first, word of David, the first letter of David, is the fourth letter of the alphabet in Hebrew. Vav, the V is the sixth. And uh, Dalit is obviously four again. So if you had David, D-V-D, that adds up to 14. And so we find a lot of stuff related to David written in poetry relate to the number 14. And so it seems like the way Matthew mentions David several times at the beginning and end, and the way he tries to accent the number 14, Matthew is, for his Jewish readers who would have understood this, trying to emphasize Jesus' connection to David, that he is the king, that he is this Messiah that we have been waiting for. And so everybody who was Jewish would have known that the Messiah had to be from the line of David. The problem was that there's a king named in uh, Matthew who is problematic for the Messiah lineage. His name was Jeconiah. I mentioned him earlier. Uh, he's also in the Old Testament called Jehoiakim. He, he's got two names. We're not quite sure why. Probably related to the exile. He had another name. But in Jeremiah 36, the prophet Jeremiah gives Jeconiah a message from the Lord. But the king burns the scroll. He won't listen to God's word. He burns the scroll. And therefore God curses him. In Jeremiah 36, 30. Therefore thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim. Jeconiah, same king. King of Judah. He shall have none to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast tasked to the heat by day and the frost by night. That's probably bad. I will punish him and his offspring and his servants in their iniquity. I will bring upon them and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem and upon all the people of Judah all the disaster I have pronounced against them, but they would not hear. See, what, is, what does God say to him through Jeremiah. He shall have none to sit on the throne of David. His line is cursed. His family can't have a king. Which means anybody from his direct lineage can't be the Messiah. So why would Matthew include this name? Well, remember, Joseph is not the father of Jesus. So some have supposed that he adds this name. And remember how he introduced him saying, the supposed father. And he goes in then to the next part to talk about the virgin birth. Some have supposed, and I think this makes a lot of sense, that Matthew is either trying to make an argument for the virgin birth, or he's trying to use the virgin birth to show that, that even though Joseph couldn't have the Messiah, Joseph's not the father, so it makes sense. It's an interesting argument. Scholars Bible nerds go on and on about this stuff. But I think it makes sense to understand Matthew. And so Matthew seems to be giving us the lineage of David. And that helps us make sense of, of uh, the names in the list. But Luke is different. In Luke, Joseph has a different father, a different grandfather, and a different great-grandfather. And so one of the suggestions that have been made, and I think there's a lot of merit to this, is that actually Luke's lineage is Mary's, Mary's lineage. 
that what Luke is doing is giving us Mary's lineage. Now, why, does, why, did, why is Joseph named? Well, because Mary couldn't own property. So Joseph would have to be listed as the important person there. But it makes sense. One of the things that have been suggested, too, and this doesn't come across in the Greek. When I read that before, it said, the son of this person, the son of that guy, the son of this person. But actually, in the Greek, it doesn't say son of. It actually just says this, this, this definite article, the. And it just means, basically, of the this guy, of the this guy, of the this guy. And it doesn't make a lot of sense. But actually, they, they, for, for the purposes of lineage and the purposes of property, often when it was the genealogy of a woman, when ultimately the last person in the lineage was a woman, that they would mark it by putting in the definite article, the, in front of all the names, so that whoever's reading the genealogy would understand, oh, so this ends up with a woman who should have the property, but the man comes in to take the property. And so there seems to be, in the Greek, a reference to this being the lineage of Mary. And this makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? That if Joseph doesn't have two fathers, though it's been suggested that potentially, because of the way marriages had to work, he had a birth father and then another father that that raised him, that would have been an uncle, but then they would have had to have had two fathers. It would be confusing. I think that Luke is giving us Mary's lineage, which does not include that king that couldn't have the Messiah. And so because Mary is the mother of Jesus, not the adopted mother, she actually has him. Luke is giving us the lineage of Jesus. He argues, he goes from Adam He goes from Jesus all the way back to Adam. Why go all the way back to Adam? Well, there's a a universality to that, right? Saying that that from the beginning of humankind, there's been a problem, and Jesus is the answer. He's the fulfillment. He's the ultimate of this problem. Jesus is connected to a heritage. Luke is not writing to Jews. He's writing primarily to Gentiles. And so one of the things Luke does a lot in his gospel is he tries to show Jesus connected to a tradition. Luke gives 11 series of seven names. That's 77 in all. You need to understand Luke's doing something funny with numbers here too because seven is a perfect number. Seven is considered the ultimate. And so when he, when he says, when he gives seven groups of 11, he comes up with 77. Ooh, that's like an ultra perfect number. Remember Jesus when they ask him, how many times should I forgive someone? Seven times? And he says, no. 70 times 7. This number 7 is perfection, completion, culmination. And so Luke seems to be making this argument that Jesus is the perfect culmination of all of humanity. And Luke puts it later. He puts it when Jesus is starting his ministry. He's given the birth narrative and he's given this this little narrative about Jesus as a child in the temple. And now... He's baptized and ready to go. And Luke uses this thing, it seems to say, this is the guy we've been waiting for. This is the culmination of human history, and he's ready to really start his ministry at this point. See, these these genealogies, they're not trying to just say something about where Jesus comes from. They're trying to say something about Jesus. Trying to say that Jesus is the new Adam, the completion, the king to come after David, whose kingdom would never end. He's born of a virgin, miraculously both God and man at once. He is the Son of God. 
In Matthew and Luke, these genealogies that we skip over, they have these huge claims about who Jesus is, if you know how to read them. And what else is it saying about Jesus? It's saying that God works faithfully throughout the generations. That we see these promises that were made to Abraham, that were made to Adam, that were made to Noah, that were made to David, all coming to fruition because God cares about his people and he takes care of them from generation to generation. Which is crazy to think about if you know the backstory of some of these people that are listed. Let's just take the four women that are listed. Tamar. Tamar is not Jewish. In Genesis 38, you can look this up another time. She, uh, she's not Jewish. She's Aramean. She marries the oldest son of Judah. Judah is the, the oldest of the, 12, of the 12 brothers. He's probably most known for selling his brother into slavery over his techno-colored dream coat. Judah is not a good guy. She marries his oldest son, and he dies before she can have children. So by right, she moves to the next son. And she becomes his husband so that she can have a child and continue to be protected in the family. But he dies without getting, giving her a child. And so she moves to the third, the youngest son. But he's too young at the time. And so Judah says, okay, you just have to wait till he's older. But for some reason, Judah does not honor that. And so Tamar waits and waits and waits. And meanwhile, she's not really protected by the family. She's not really taken care of by the family. And so it apparently, Judah, maybe she thought Tamar was part of the problem. Maybe she, he thought he, she was unlucky. Maybe he was just succumbing to the youngest son's wishes, as sometimes parents do. For whatever reason, he won't give her Tamar. But Tamar knows that Judah likes prostitutes. And so what, what Tamar does is she, she dresses up as a prostitute and uh, spends a night with Judah and ends up getting pregnant by him. Keeps his, his staff as proof. And she comes back and says, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't honor me. You, you wouldn't take care of me like you were supposed to. And so I, I stole this from you. I stole this child from you when you wouldn't give it to me. <laughs> That's the story of Tamar. And while Sarah is listed, Tam, whilst Tamar is listed, Sarah, the wife of Abraham, is not what about Rahab? Rahab is known in, to be a prostitute in Jericho when the Israelites come into the land. She saves the Israelite spies in, his prom, in, in the promised land. and is, Her whole story is that she chose to protect the Israelites and get out of there before her country, her, her city, was destroyed. She took off and chose the Israelites and their God over her own people, and she watched them die. What about Ruth? Ruth is not such a shady character. We talked about her earlier this year. Moabite woman, bravely follows her mother-in-law into the promised land and marries Boaz. Matthew also lists uh, the wife of Uriah, who is Bathsheba. Notice he doesn't even list her by name. He just calls her the wife of Uriah, or wife of the Hittite. This story is in 2 Samuel. Remember, David is at his palace and he looks out and he sees Bathsheba bathing. Now, you would not normally have bathed out in the open like that. So there's a lot of suspicion that Bathsheba maybe wanted to be seen anyway. 
They have an affair and eventually David sends her husband to the front line so he can get killed and then they get married. Bathsheba is not a very popular character. He doesn't, she does not even get listed by name in this genealogy. She's not even called the wife of David. She's called the wife of the Hittite, the one who got killed. All the while, Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, and Rachel are not listed. These are the characters that Jesus adds. Even the good guys. Abraham lied about his wife being his sister twice to save his own skin. She ended up having to be falsely married to somebody else. Noah saved the people from the flood, but eventually gets caught drunk and naked in his tent. Sure, you can read the story. We already talked about the trouble with David. These genealogies, especially Matthew, includes men and women. Jews and Gentiles, good guys and bad guys, sinners and saints, popular characters. And there's a whole bunch of names in here that we have no idea who they are. They're just names. It's the only place we have them recorded. Why? Because I think this gene- these genealogies also say something about us. Joseph, Jesus' adopted father. We are adopted into God's family as well. We are adopted, made children. So I don't know what kind of difficulties you've been through in your life. I don't know what kind of bad history you have. I don't know about your family and some of the bad history that has gone on back in the generations. But God looks out over human history and he can pick any kind of line to insert himself into human history. And he chooses this line with all these difficult people. Why wouldn't he choose you? Why wouldn't he choose your family? Maybe the greatest legacy that you will have is to break free from your own family history and bring God's blessing to generations that come after you. This is the blessing of Jesus' birth. Because God doesn't care about your background. He doesn't care about your family. He doesn't care about your past. He doesn't care about your mistakes. He doesn't care about your weaknesses. What God cares about is you. And he loves you and he comes for you. He loves you to the point that he entered into this broken group of people. Leaving heaven and coming to earth. That is what Christmas is about. And I pray you feel that love and that hope of being called a child of God. Thanks to the work of Jesus Christ this Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. For these genealogies, though we skip over them so often, may they speak to us. Let us hear what they say about who Jesus is and let us hear what they say about who we are. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.